I think in terms of things to watch for the U.S.-Chinese relationship, obviously there will be more exchanges, there will be more conversations back and forth. But if you're looking for a number, the average level of tariffs on Chinese imports was 3% at the beginning of the Trump administration. And that is now uh, risen to 20%, the sum total of tariffs that we put on mm. Chinese imports. Um, you know, will that number go down? Or could we see all of these other very emotional issues, Congress getting involved, see those tariffs actually rise? Uh, will we get up as high as 25%, something like that? That, I think, is not in the market right now. Maybe it's not our base case, but it's certainly a rising risk. That was Dr. Christopher Smart, head of the Barings Investment Institute. And this is Streaming Income, a podcast from Barings. I'm your host, Greg Campion, and I'd like to welcome you to episode number four of season four of Streaming Income. This season, we are going deep on topics like the global economic recovery and on asset classes like EM debt, high yield, private credit, real estate, and more. Remember, if you'd like to receive our latest insights as soon as they become available, you can subscribe to the show by searching Streaming Income on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. My guest today is Dr. Christopher Smart, head of the Barings Investment Institute and chief global strategist for Barings. A former special assistant to the president and deputy assistant secretary of the treasury during the Obama administration, Dr. Smart writes the weekly Leading Thoughts article, which appears on Bearings.com, on LinkedIn, and regularly in leading financial news publications. He also leads a team that produces timely and topical content on macroeconomic and geopolitical developments, as well as the most important long-term structural themes impacting tomorrow's markets. Our conversation here spanned a tremendous amount of ground in just a short time. We attempted to cover the five factors shaping the global economy in 2021, from interest rates and inflation to U.S. stimulus packages to the outlooks for Europe and China, We covered a lot of ground and even speculated on what life after the pandemic may look like for all of us. So with that, please enjoy this conversation with Dr. Christopher Smart. All right, Christopher Smart, thank you so much for joining me today. Nice to be here. Awesome. Well, um, listen, it's been a little while since you've been on the show. I think it was last July that you you joined me. Um, Seems like only yesterday. I know, and I don't know if you'll remember, but uh, you made some bold predictions back then, um, <laughs> and it is my responsibility as the host to, to, to check up on those. Uh, so I will report the good news is that uh, your prediction on that we would be sitting here today with a President Biden, uh, which was somewhat bold at that stage back in July, uh, came yes, to fruition, yes. obviously. Uh, unfortunately for you, one of your predictions um, did not come to fruition, and that was your call that the Boston Red Sox would win five games out of 10 versus New York Yankees. Unfortunately, they only won one. So it was uh, a bit sad, but I just want to hold you uh, accountable for those predictions. No, that was a prediction for this coming season. Oh, I see. Okay. Thanks yeah, for, for, for clarifying that. <laughs> All right. So we're going to be talking today about um, five factors shaping the global economy in 2021. And so For our listeners' knowledge, uh, the format of this discussion will be as follows. 
Uh, we're going to attempt to go around the world uh, over the course of the next 30 or so minutes, hitting on five key factors that Christopher and team believe will shape the global economy this year. Uh, Christopher has graciously agreed to take on this challenge, and for each factor, I'll be asking him exactly what it is that we know today, what we don't know, and what we need to watch. So, Christopher, are you sure you want to do this? I am, and I'm glad you've chosen this format because it's actually something that Colin Powell used to insist upon when he was Secretary of State and throughout his career uh, in the in the U.S. Army as well, he was tired of people coming into his office and opining, and he would stop them and say, stop, don't tell me what you think first until you tell me exactly what you know, and then exactly what you don't know, and then only then do I want to hear your opinion. So you're, you're holding me to that standard. All right. Those are great footsteps to follow in. All right. Well, let's get going. Factor number one interest rates and inflation. So this is something that's been on everyone's mind heading into 2021. Uh, We've started to see investors positioning for higher rates in the form of allocations to floating rate asset classes, for instance. But the focus on interest rates and inflation has become, you know, really front page news just over the last several days. So tell us what it is about interest rates and inflation that we know today. Well, what we know is that it has been falling over the last four decades. Uh, and if you look at the structural factors that I think help frame the conversation, you know, back to the 1980s, of course, when inflation, 1970s and 80s, when inflation was very high, ever since then, you look at a long-term chart and both inflation and rates have been marching ever lower, really based on a lot of structural factors in the world, new competition from China and India, bringing new labor into the global workforce, technology that has continued to drive prices of things uh, lower, uh, and maybe some demographic factors as well that have kept a lid on wage growth um, uh, really around the world. And so in the broader scheme of things, I think we have been marching lower. Obviously, what we also know is that we had a crisis and a tremendous government response to respond to the crisis, and things have started to bounce back. Uh, And so I think that's really where we are. We are in the rebound from the depths of last spring and early summer. And the question is, where do we go next? The list of things we don't know is much longer than the list of things we do know. I think that's where uh, some humility becomes important. And I think that's where we're trying to decide are rates really now headed today towards 2% or will they drop back closer to 1% or below, which is where the markets um, had been very comfortable. Uh, A lot of focus on the economic data right now, as at least in the United States, Vaccines continue to roll out with some bumps along the way, but it looks like uh, we're making progress there. Retail sales data coming through, reflecting the stimulus um, that Congress passed in late December. Uh, That is an encouraging sign. But the questions, you know, moving forward is how much does that follow through into a sustainable recovery? Uh, As you know, front and center on Congress's agenda in recent weeks and over the next week or two will be a new stimulus package as high as about $2 trillion. It may not come in quite that high, but that will give a further boost to the uh, economy going forward from here. But how much of a boost also depends on the labor force, which is that uh, we have a 
unemployment rate that still is about twice what it was a year ago. It's 6.3% or some. We'll, we'll find out new data uh, over the next few days. But a lot of people have left the labor force. A lot of jobs that were there before aren't there anymore. And I think those are the two sets of factors the markets are grappling with, both this very strong government response that boosts the recovery, but also enormous slack in the economy that has yet to be taken up. Okay, so you've kind of covered um, you know, what we should watch going forward. Um, just remind us, uh, you know, why this is so important. So whether you're looking at interest rates or inflation or both, what are the implications here, especially from an investor standpoint? Well, from an investor standpoint, it's all about valuations, particularly differentiating between the bond market and the stock market. The stock market has obviously had very elevated price to earnings ratios and other uh, valuation metrics that make it look expensive. But as long as you believe that rates will remain low or on the low side, and everybody's got a slightly different definition of low, um, those should be relatively sustainable levels as earnings continue to flow through this year. I think, uh, generally speaking, it should be a pretty good environment for uh, equities. Again, on a increasingly... Uh, Stock by stock basis, I think you know. Last year we saw the whole economy recover. Now it's going to be much more important to to sharpen your pencils and pull down your green eye shades and do the work to see which companies are going to do well as we pull out of this pandemic. Uh, similarly, credit should continue to do well, but again, that requires some, some differentiation as well. We've got companies that have borrowed a lot of money through the crisis, as money has been cheap, and the real question will be: Can they put that money to good use? Will they be able to sustain their balance sheet in its current form? Will we see some mergers and acquisitions picking up this year? I think that's probably quite likely. Uh, and, but that also creates you know, real opportunities for those who can differentiate one stock from another, one deal from another. Yeah, and I guess uh, depending on the direction that interest rates go, uh, it could have implications for some of these pockets of you know what would probably be best described as froth uh, in the market, whether you're talking about some of the areas that you mentioned, if it's tech stocks or you know very tight credit spreads or even cryptocurrencies or some of the speculation that we've seen in the likes of GameStop and AMC, um, and even some of these newer investment vehicles and asset classes like SPACs and NFTs, it seems like there's a new acronym to get your head around um, almost on a daily basis. There's a lot of money sloshing around out there. And uh, clearly, uh, it's very hard to look at something and determine definitively whether it's a bubble or not, because it's not it's not really a bubble until it bursts. Sure. Uh, but clearly there's a lot of, there are a lot of things going on out there that raise eyebrows. And I think that's where I go back to my earlier point where, you know, the, the sharp pencils and the green eye shades, uh, are, are really important in terms of differentiating what business models will thrive, uh, as we come out of this and which ones, uh, will not. Okay, so let's talk about factor number two, the U.S. stimulus. So this is perhaps one of the big first uh, tests for the Biden administration. The new Congress um, will be passing and executing uh, a new COVID stimulus package. So tell us, what do we know today about this? Well, we know that uh, it has been proposed. The president has asked for something around $1.9 trillion dollars. Uh, it is uh, sailing through a house that is 
in the firm hand of the Democrats. And uh, there's a lot of question as to what will happen when the Senate gets involved. The, there are elements in this that may or may not be possible under very complex Senate rules to be passed through this process that is called reconciliation, um, that allows bills to pass the Senate with uh, 50 plus one votes rather than requiring 60 votes uh, often. And um, that will play out over the next few days. I think from an investor's point of view, the details are less important than the fact that money is likely to come through targeted in particular on lower income households. The big part of that money uh, involves extending enhanced unemployment benefits that expire in the middle of March, as well as $1,400 checks to low-income households or individuals earning less than $75,000 per year. That's the broad outlines. A lot of the details remain to be ironed out. But again, more money is on the way. And we saw that the December package that was passed uh, in President Trump's last days has been very important in more recent economic data that we have seen in terms of retail sales in the United States, uh, income, personal spending. A lot of that money has flowed through from the stimulus package. And so it's likely to come through again and take us through the summer, which is when this next package is uh, due to expire. And so with the stimulus package, what should we keep an eye on uh, going forward? And then also I'm interested in your view just on the kind of long-term implications, you know, there's concerns that have been raised around, you know, printing so much money, around balancing budgets. Tell me what you think about all that. Well, just in terms of, you know, as, as, as I said before, we know that more money is coming. We don't know exactly how it will be allocated. Uh, and there probably there could be some hiccups along the way and some slight delays. In terms of things to watch, I think there are probably two things that are going to come into center view for for markets over the next few months. The first one is that the Biden administration has begun whispering about its next big economic package, which will be a lot of the themes he raised in the campaign, investing in infrastructure, investing in climate change, uh, balanced out by some increases in corporate tax and high income family taxes. Um, the details of that remain still a little bit vague, but he's talking about another $3 trillion of stimulus and support for the economy, which I think will be very important in the sense that it's not directly money into people's pockets the way this package is, but it's really longer term efforts to boost um, the growth rate of the economy. Um, the second thing that I think is important is to see how the Republican Party is reshaping itself. Every party does this when it loses an election, a presidential election. But in this particular case, when you have a party that is so uh, divided within itself around former President Trump, many members of the party wanting him to play an important role in that party, uh, he is, you know, um, not a fiscal hawk, as we've seen, you know, his uh, effort over his administration was really to cut taxes without much focus on the deficit or the impact on debt. His philosophy is very much one that involves easier money, lower interest rates, allowing the market to continue to, to grow with easy access to, to cheap money. And um, that's not the traditional Republican uh, philosophy, which focuses more on balanced budgets and lower inflation. So if the debate shifts uh, between Republicans and Democrats, and there is not that 
ringing voice about we need to bring deficits under control, I think that will start to seep into some market concerns. That's not today's concern. It's not even this year's concern. But over the next couple of years, I think that could that could shape uh, the way markets look at things. Well, let's move across the uh, Atlantic uh, to Europe and let's talk about um, let's talk about the recovery there. Um, so coming out of the last global recession, Europe obviously struggled. Uh, we had the sovereign debt crisis. We had bailouts. Southern Europe was very much at the center of the storm. Uh, so tell us from your perspective, you know, how will this time be you know, similar or, or different? Again, to keep it our format, what, what do we know today? Well, what we know today is that Europe uh, suffered greatly from the crisis. Uh, it looks like GDP in Europe last year contracted around roughly 7% compared to roughly 3.5% in the U.S. It looks like it's also struggling more to distribute vaccines, to control the more recent outbursts of different variants of COVID-19. And so that has been a lag as well. On the more positive side, what we also know is that Europe already has some built-in fiscal automatic stabilizers. Governments are set up to provide support for furloughed employees so that companies, uh, instead of firing everybody, furlough their workforce. The government picks up a lot of the cost of their salaries. That relieves the companies from that pressure. It also keeps households uh, liquid and able to continue spending. So Europe hasn't had to pass a lot of big stimulus uh, measures to support current income. Uh, last thing that I think we know what is different from last time around is that Europe has really come together in this pandemic to pool its resources around a very important European recovery fund, 750 billion euros, um, which is even more if you turn it into dollars. But it is really focused on those infrastructure, longer term projects that will boost growth in Europe over the years. So that, I think, is a very important piece of the puzzle that we know right now. Yeah, absolutely. And I think with with some of the green energy initiatives that are part of that package, I think there's going to be investment implications across a variety of asset classes. And I know a lot of our teams on the ground there are hard at work analyzing all those implications so what is it that we that we don't know um, about Europe today, and what should we keep an eye on? Well, three things I think we don't know. One, of, of course, is obviously the virus. And uh, again, because it appears they're having, they have been having more difficulty with vaccine rollout, that is a concern. Um, the second thing is, you know, governments uh, have been allowed to skip their traditional focus on deficit and debt targets under the stability and growth pact that shapes the Eurozone in particular and the EU more broadly. They have been given a pass last year, this year, and next year to be able to spend more. But there is a question about when the politics of that might change and countries might, because of their own domestic political dynamics, start pulling back on their spending plans. And then I think the third thing is this European Recovery Fund can the money be put to good use? Will it actually boost growth? Um, and then to, to, to jump to your next question, what should we be watching? We should be really watching uh, events in Italy. Mario Draghi, as you know, is the new prime minister of Italy. Uh, he has a tremendous track record as the president of the European Central Bank of bolstering European institutions, European integration. 
And the task for him is to really show that he can put this money to good use in Italy, boost Italy's growth rate, and really create confidence in this notion that investment from the European level can really turn the corner on Europe's overall trajectory. So would you be specifically looking at Italian bond spreads, for instance, as a barometer of how all this is going? Well, the the thing we all learned, I think, in the last European crisis was to follow uh, Greek and Portuguese and Irish bond spreads. We all learned those functions on Bloomberg and uh, everywhere else, yes. Exactly. Uh, Italy and Spain were not far behind, but I think right now, you know, the Italian bond spreads are right around 100 basis points. And if they if they start coming in, which they did when Draghi took office, I think those are all good signs. If they start blowing out again, that's probably a a signal that all is not well in uh, in Rome. Well, let's move across to the other side of the world and let's talk about Asia and let's talk about China specifically. So with factor number four here, which is China's growth path in the trade war, um, you know, before our world was turned upside down with COVID, of course, U.S.-China trade wars were at the top of everyone's concern list. Um, of course, China, even though they were the origin of the pandemic, they've fared relatively well and, and bounced back more quickly than other regions. So talk to us about their growth, uh, the place, their place on the world stage, and maybe what happens next um, on the trade war front. I know there's a lot packed in there, but what do we know today? Well, we know today that of the major economies of the world uh, in 2020, uh, China was the one that actually grew. Uh, China grew 2.3%. Obviously, the COVID outbreak initially appeared in China, but China contained it pretty quickly, managed the downside, managed to support manufacturing and The recovery of global trade has been very important for for China as well. It looks like the estimates from the IMF that China may grow as much as 8% this year. Hmm. The broader question, of course, is the balance of that growth within China. And authorities have always been trying to move from a balance that reflects more services and consumption uh, within the Chinese economy rather than just manufacturing and exports. And so there is a more sophisticated approach within China to strike that balance rather than just throwing money at the problem, hoping that it will um, boost the recovery. Uh, And I think that's something to watch. 8% is not a sustainable rate for China. In fact, I think we're all looking for China to to slow its growth uh, over the next few years. And that, I think, is something we'll be we'll be watching. But I'm jumping ahead of my story because <laughs> you're going to ask me what we don't know. What don't we know? <laughs> well, there's a lot we don't know once again. And I think that has to do with the relationship between um, Xi Jinping, the Chinese president, and the Biden administration. There had been, I think, a lot of expectation that President Biden, who was running as a more traditional politician, one with a great deal of international expertise would bring a more sober, predictable, um, maybe bureaucratic uh, response to engagement with China that would lower tensions, maybe lower tariffs, and uh, help create a path to progress on a number of fronts. What we really don't know is whether that's the case. And because not only is President Biden himself very concerned about a lot of the issues that President Trump raised manufacturing leaving this country, unfair trade practices, 
on the part of Chinese authorities and a long list of concerns that American presidents for years have been raising with their Chinese counterparts. Um, but what we don't know is whether he is ready to start bringing some of those tariffs down again, uh, whether he can bring to bear pressure with our allies in Japan and Europe to create progress on that front. The problem is right now there are just a lot of non-economic issues that are bubbling up between the U.S. and China, uh, non-economic issues around North Korea, around uh, human rights, around cyber activities. And those are very emotional, very difficult, and are likely to slosh over into the economic agenda. Yeah. So maybe more of an evolution uh, than a revolution in, in the U.S.-China policy. I think that's right. Yeah, we, we could do a separate episode uh, for sure on um, on foreign policy changes and uh, and maybe what doesn't change is under a Biden administration because it seems in places like Saudi Arabia, maybe things are taking a turn in terms of how one administration wants to handle them versus another, but maybe in China. Um, I don't know if I, you would call it a continuation, but, but maybe it is an evolution. I think in terms of things to watch for the U.S.-Chinese relationship, Obviously, there will be more exchanges, there will be more conversations back and forth. But if you're looking for a number, the average level of tariffs on Chinese imports was 3% at the beginning of the Trump administration, and that is now uh, risen to 20%, the sum total of tariffs that we put on mm. Chinese imports. Um, you know, Will that number go down, or could we see all of these other very emotional issues, Congress getting involved? see those tariffs actually rise? Uh, will we get up as high as 25%, something like that? That, I think, is not in the market right now. Maybe it's not our base case, but it's certainly a rising risk. All right. The last factor, we've made it to the end here. Number five, uh, the return to quote-unquote normal. So this has been clearly the top question on everyone's mind over the last year or so. When will things get back to normal? Um, so give me your view there from uh, an economic perspective. I want to narrow the scope somewhat for you. Um, maybe you can start before you tell us what we know. Uh, in your mind, what does normal actually mean? Can you define that? Well, my definition is maybe a little unusual, but my definition of normal is going to be when is it that you walk down the street next and you shake hands with a stranger without thinking about it for a little bit, about whether that's a safe practice to engage in, whether you've washed your hands, whether um, the other person has. Uh, I, I think we'll get there eventually, but you know that particular moment of doubt reflects a whole lot of other uh, potential activities, whether we're going to go back to the movie theaters, whether we're going to go back to restaurants, how quickly we're going to jump on an airplane. And my sense is we're on the course to a pretty rapid recovery of a lot of those activities, but not fully back to where we were in January of last year. What don't we know yet? And then again, what should we watch or keep an eye on? Well, there's obviously a huge medical element in all of this, right? The virus, as that we've all become um, uh, armchair experts in, uh, we realize how much it is that even our experts don't understand about it, how it spreads, uh, and it makes it all the more remarkable that we have such effective vaccines. But it's lingering effects. Uh, what will happen uh, in um, in the developing world where vaccine rollout will be delayed, perhaps? And then I think from an economic point of view, there are two things that we're focused on 
is to try and understand the extent of the lingering scars from this crisis. The first thing that we're watching, Greg, is the level of unemployment, in particular, the level of long-term unemployment. The overall headline rate has been coming down because of the recovery as jobs come back, but we still have uh, a relatively high number of initial claims, so people who continue to lose their jobs, and this growing number of people who have been out of the workforce for more than 28 weeks. And the longer you stay out of the workforce, the harder it is to come back in because more likely than not, your job has gone away. Your company may have gone away. Uh, and the other issue that we're going to face increasingly is that some of the types of jobs that we had before um, may not be there and have been already replaced with new jobs that need new skills. So just as a quick example, if you are a flight attendant and you see the airline industry going through tremendous reorganization and downsizing, it's not necessarily easy for you to find work in the online retail sales logistics industry um, that Amazon and others continue to make uh, headway in. And those are the transitions that are going to make this recovery much more difficult. Okay. So clearly a lot to, to keep your eye on. Um, Christopher, thanks for taking this virtual trip around the world with me. Um, where can people find you, follow you, et cetera? Because this, a lot of this stuff is, is changing very rapidly, and I know you're um, consistently putting out your thoughts. So where can people find you? Well, I think the best place to look is our monthly macro dashboard, which comes out at the beginning of the month and is available under the Institute tab at bearings.com. That's where we go into our central scenario that I've essentially laid out for you right now, which is our, the, the not-quite-recovery things getting better, but some of these scars may be holding us back going forward. Uh, but you can get all, all of our research there by me, by our other colleagues. You mentioned my weekly column called Leading Thoughts, which is available on, on LinkedIn. And then, of course, I uh, try and make some, some more regular comments, and more frequent comments on Twitter, uh, at CSmart. So join us, join the conversation there. He's a great follow on Twitter, so check him out, at Smart. You know, Twitter's making changes of their own, so I think we may have to call Christopher a super follow pretty soon if, you, if you're in the loop with all that. <laughs> you're too kind. Um, you're too kind. <laughs> all right, Christopher, uh, this has been great. Appreciate you, uh, you filling us in on all of this stuff, and I uh, hope to get you back on the show uh, soon. Thanks again for joining, and, uh, and we'll speak soon. Thanks, Greg. Thanks for listening to episode number four of season four of Streaming Income. Remember to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so that you are the first to hear about our latest episodes. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.